This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, Trumpet Hour listeners, and welcome to the show. I'm Philip Nice. There is so much to ask, so much to think about, so much to say about the horrifying stain on humanity that the wretched and the wicked have committed in Israel. I've been just stunned by it, thinking about it. I can't really express myself, but the Trumpet staff here, we've been talking about it, meeting, broadcasting, the Friday Week in Review, if you joined us for that, and just racing to put together the November-December issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet. And as we have been talking about what has happened, we keep hitting another realization, another, oh, wow, as we see how it connects to this and to that and to this and to this. What has happened there is so much more important than even I realized. So we will talk about it more on Friday's Week in Review and in the November-December Trumpet. But today's Trumpet Hour is on a different subject, the evil we've seen in Israel and that we have seen demonstrated by educated people around the world who are celebrating what happened in Israel, that is something that people learn. The ultimate war here for all of us is for minds. The war is over the mind, and right now we are seeing that the enemy in this war for the mind is something that is anti-human. And we see how far it will go. But there is a place where humanity, where the creator of humanity is winning that war for the mind. Winning it one class, one observance, one attitude, one relationship, one bad habit, one bit of discipline, one bit of instruction, one aspiration, one family, one student at a time. That's how you win it. That's how a cute little child playing with stones does not grow up to become an inhuman monstrosity. You have to know, know what is right. You have to know the human mind, what it is, what it does, and what is good and what is evil. You have to fight for it, and you have to teach it. And what we have for you now is a peek into some of that education, that training. It's training that you need, too, and that I need. This is a recent college forum. It's about focusing your mind on your mission. And it's brought to you and me by an educator at Herbert W. Armstrong College, the principal of Imperial Academy, and the well-liked creator of Trumpet Hour, Joel Hilliker. Three days ago, I was sitting in the passenger seat of a Tesla Model S plaid that a church member had rented for the feast. That was his that was his wheels during the feast. We were in this stretch of road in the parking lot and he put it in drag strip mode. He uh, held his foot on the brake and then stood on the gas pedal and that makes the car go into cheetah stance and it drops the car down. It kind of squats and it holds the car down onto the ground. And then he took off, and in that short section of road, we got up to nearly 90 miles an hour in just a few seconds. That that car goes from zero to 60 in 1.99 seconds. So it was the closest thing to Six Flags Over Texas that I've experienced in quite a while. And I had a very strong 
involuntary reaction to this experience, I began laughing hysterically. And I, I said, please, let's do that again. And then I asked him to do it again, a third time. But the fact that an electric car can perform such a feat, it's pretty much because of one man. Before this man came on the scene, the general perception of electric cars was golf carts. So this one man took them from golf carts to being something really cool that a lot of people want. He turned Tesla into the sixth company in U.S. history that's worth more than a trillion dollars. Its market value exceeded its five biggest rivals, Toyota, Volkswagen, Daimler, Ford, and GM combined. In fact, as of April of last year, Tesla stock was worth more than the next nine largest auto companies combined, which is just amazing. And why did he create an electric car that can go into cheetah mode? and that can accelerate to 60 in two seconds. He did that because he wants to bring civilization into the age of renewable energy. That's why he did it. In March 2004, the man who founded Tesla, there were a couple of men who founded that company, and they were looking for investors, and they called Elon Musk. This is from Walter Isaacson's book, Elon Musk. In this meeting in Musk's cubicle at SpaceX, it was supposed to last half an hour, but Musk kept peppering them with questions while occasionally shouting over to his assistant to cancel his next meeting. For two hours, they shared their visions for a supercharged electric car, discussing the details of everything from the drivetrain and motor to the business plan. At the end of the meeting, Musk said he would invest. When they got outside the building, Eberhard and Wright, these two guys, exchanged high fives. After a follow-up meeting, they agreed that Musk would lead the initial financing round with $6.4 million investment to become chair of the board. What struck this one man was that Musk focused on the importance of the mission rather than the potential of the business. He said he clearly had already come to the conclusion that to have a sustainable future, we had to electrify cars to have a sustainable future. That focus on the mission rather than on the money is a recurring theme in Elon Musk's life. And it's a lesson that we can all apply in our own lives. I read this biography, Isaac's biography of Elon Musk, and in the assembly today, I'd like to share some lessons. And this is basically the big lesson that I want to get across to you, is that we need to be mission-driven. Be mission-driven. That's the title of this lecture. Be mission-driven, lessons from Elon Musk. Now, this is a 600-plus page book, so there's only so much we can cover in 55 minutes. But I, I do think there's a lot that we can learn from this man. I do want to preface this with a couple of caveats. One is that this book is loaded with foul language, which is really obnoxious. And the other is that Elon Musk is crazy, and he's a very flawed man, and he has some terrible ideas. I read this kind of in the spirit of Mr. Mr. Fleury writing about Napoleon and a chapter in the How to Be an Overcomer book on the science of spiritual warfare lessons from a genocidal dictator. So, uh, you know, the Holy Roman Empire emperor, he's not a genocidal dictator, but he is crazy. But the story of how this small startup company, Tesla, became so dominant is extraordinary. And what makes it even more extraordinary is 
that this is just one of $4 billion companies that this man oversees. Tesla is worth a trillion dollars. His company, Neuralink, is worth a billion dollars. The Boring Company is worth $5.6 billion. This is as of 18 months ago. SpaceX is worth $100 billion. And then Twitter, now called X, is worth several billion dollars. So this is a very ambitious and a very successful man. He's been the world's richest man a few times. But the amazing thing is he's not focused on money. He has bigger goals in mind. I want to remind you of Mr. Gerald Fleury's orientation lecture at the beginning of this year, where he was talking about war points. And one of those points that he encouraged us to live by is to have one or more epic goals. This is from the coworker letter that he wrote from that message. This work itself is an epic undertaking. We have to be doing and producing God is ambitious, and we need to think like God. We need to be ambitious like God. And that's a theme that Mr. Fleury has gone back to many times about having godly ambition. In that coworker letter, Mr. Fleury used the example of Churchill. He said he started setting and achieving his goals at a young age. The younger you begin that process, the more you will excel. To become exceptional, set epic goals now. Now, Elon Musk sets epic goals. People tell him that something is impossible, and he's like, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. He doesn't just accept it. He looks into that to see if it's really true. When he was a kid, he loved reading comic books, and this is how he explained the reason. The single-minded passion of the superheroes impressed him. They're always trying to save the world with their underpants on the outside, or these skin-tight iron suits, which is pretty strange when you think about it. But they are trying to save the world. That's what impressed him about the superheroes. They're trying to save the world. And that is really grandiose mindset that he takes into his endeavors. He went to college to study engineering, and one of his friends recalled that Musk focused on the three areas that would shape his career. Whether he was calibrating the force of gravity or analyzing the property of materials, he would discuss how the laws of physics applied to building rockets. He kept talking about making a rocket that would go to Mars, this man recalls. Of course, I didn't pay much attention because I thought he was fantasizing. Musk also focused on electric cars. He and his friend would grab lunch from one of the food trucks and sit on the campus lawn where Musk would read academic papers on batteries. California had just passed a requirement mandating that 10% of the vehicles by 2003 had to be electric. I want to go make that happen, he said. And he was also convinced that solar power, which in 1994 was just taking off, was the best path towards sustainable energy. His senior paper was titled The Importance of Being Solar. He was motivated not just by the dangers of climate change, but also by the fact that fossil fuel reserves would start to dwindle. Society will soon have no option but to focus on renewable power sources, he wrote. So those three areas would shape his career, rockets, electric cars, solar power. Now, knowing what we know, those are misguided goals, but they are epic. They really are epic And you can already begin to see that they're aimed at trying to save the world. They're aimed at kind of rescuing mankind somehow. People tried to convince him to go into banking. He thought, well, what do bankers contribute to society? He got a part-time job for a company programming video games. 
And he could have been really successful at that, but he didn't want to just make money. He said he wanted to have more of an impact. He was thinking of enrolling to get a PhD after he finished school, but then he says, I figured I could spend several years at Stanford, get a PhD, and my conclusion on capacitors would be that they aren't feasible. He said, most PhDs are irrelevant. The number that actually move the needle is almost none. He had conceived by then a life vision that he would repeat like a mantra. I thought about the things that will truly affect humanity. I came up with three, the internet, sustainable energy, and space travel. So that's quite a vision. And at that time, the internet wave was just taking off. And he said, well, I've got I've to ride this wave. So he founded a company called Zip2. It was an online searchable directory of businesses combined with map software. It was very successful. Within four years, they sold the business for $307 million. Elon Musk's payout was $22 million. He had $22 million in the bank as a 27-year-old. He said his bank account went from $5,000 to $22,005,000 overnight. He poured most of that money into founding a second company, X.com, and that merged with PayPal. After a couple of years with that, he had $250 million in the bank, and he was pushed out of the company. He was trying to figure out what to do next. Afterward, driving back to Manhattan on the Long Island Expressway, he and his friend talked about what Musk would do next. I've always wanted to do something in space, he said, but I don't think there's anything that an individual can do. It was too expensive, of course, for a private person to build a rocket. Or was it? Exactly what were the basic physical requirements? All that was needed, Musk figured, was metal and fuel. Those didn't re really cost that much. By the time we reached the Midtown Tunnel, his friend says, we decided that it was possible. When he got to his hotel that evening, Musk logged into the NASA website to read about its plans for going to Mars. I figured it had to be soon because we went to the moon in 1969. So we must be about to go to Mars. When he couldn't find the schedule, he rummaged deeper on the site until he realized that NASA had no plans for Mars. He was shocked. Now, if you think, well, what's NASA's plans for Mars? And you find out they don't have any plans and you're like, oh, bummer. Well, he's like, okay, well, then I'm going to have to take us to Mars. That's just the way that he thought about things. Musk now had a new mission, one that was loftier than launching an internet bank. He went to the Palo Alto Public Library to read about rocket engineering and started calling experts asking to borrow their old engine manuals. He said to one of his friends, I'm going to colonize Mars. My mission in life is to make mankind a multi-planetary civilization. His reaction, his friend's reaction was, dude, you're bananas. Another friend had a similar reaction. After listening to Musk describe his plan to send rockets to Mars, he said, well, how is this a business? Later, Hoffman would realize that Musk didn't think that way. What I didn't appreciate, he says, is that Elon starts with a mission and later finds a way to backfill in order to make it work financially. That's what makes him a force of nature. He starts with the mission. So he has his mind on this overarching mission, and then everything else flows from that. Now, why go to Mars? He, he has three reasons that he gave here. First, he says, this is Isaacson writing, he found it surprising and frightening that technological progress was not inevitable. It could stop. It could even backslide. America had gone to the moon, but then came the grounding of the shuttle missions and an end to progress. 
He said, do we want to tell our children that going to the moon is the best we did and then we gave up? So that's one reason. The second reason, another motivation was that colonizing other planets would help ensure the survival of human civilization and consciousness in case something happened to our fragile planet. It may someday be destroyed by an asteroid or climate change or nuclear war. So he wanted to ensure the survival of humanity. Now that's interesting because there's several times where in this book it talks about just how he has a real sense of how special human beings are and how our survival is at stake. Like we could actually die as a species. They were talking about AI. This guy said, well, what difference does it make if machines surpass humans in intelligence? This is Musk. He says, human consciousness is a precious flicker of light in the universe, and we should not let it be extinguished. This other guy considered that sentimental nonsense. He accused Musk of being a speciesist, a speciesist, someone who was biased in favor of their own species. And Musk said, well, yes, I am pro-human. I like humanity, dude. His third reason is this. It was more inspirational. He said, the United States is literally a distillation of the human spirit of exploration. This is a land of adventurers. That spirit needed to be rekindled in America, he felt. And the best way to do that would be to embark on a mission to colonize Mars. To have a base on Mars would be incredibly difficult. This is Musk speaking. And people will probably die along the way just as happened in the settling of the United States. But it will be incredibly inspiring, and we must have inspiring things in the world. This is uh, Isaacson. Life can't be merely about solving problems, he felt. It also had to be about pursuing great dreams. Musk said, that's what can get us up in the morning. Faring to other planets would be, he believed, one of the most significant advances in the story of humanity. We need to pursue great dreams. Now, making life multiplanetary, that's quite a vision. And obviously, his solution is misguided. I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced that God even intends Mars to be inhabited. I don't know. It's the closest thing. It's the best chance that we have as far as conditions right now. But I just think, man, this guy is going to be really excited when he finds out about our awesome universe potential. That God doesn't intend mankind to be multiplanetary. He does intend us to expand out into the universe a lot further than Mars. So with that mission in mind, what did he do? He traveled to Russia and he started shopping for used rockets. And the communists didn't want to sell him rockets. They didn't want a capitalist to, to get one of their old rockets. So they were charging these exorbitant fees for them, way overpriced. Musk came up with what he called the idiot index, which is the difference, the markup in the materials to the retail price. And the higher the idiot index, the more you gain from just building it yourself. So he started to do the calculations. After coming back from Russia, he's like, okay, well, how much does this stuff cost? And he started doing back of the napkin calculations. And he said, I think that we can do this. And his friends said, you're nuts. One of his friends made a highlight reel of dozens of rockets blowing up. And he corralled friends to fly to Los Angeles where they gathered with Musk to talk him out of it. They made me watch a reel of rockets exploding because they wanted to convince me that I would lose all my money. But 
The arguments about the risk served to strengthen Musk's resolve. He liked risk. He said, it's true. The likeliest outcome is that I'll lose all my money. But what's the alternative? That there be no progress in space exploration? We've got to give this a shot or we're stuck on Earth forever. Isaacson says it was a rather grandiose mandate from heaven assessment of how indispensable he was to the progress of humankind. But like many of Musk's most laughable assertions, it contained a kernel of truth. He said, I wanted to hold out hope that humans could be a spacefaring civilization and be out there among the stars. And there was no chance of that unless a new company was started to create revolutionary rockets. So that became his mission. And that drove every decision that he made with this company, the, the company that became SpaceX. When you have that driving purpose, that has several knock-on effects. And you really do see that in Elon Musk's life. That ambition produces drive. It produces a willingness to work hard to achieve that mission. It drives you to crush complacency, which is always a danger in our human nature. We're always prone to want to relax and get complacent. That sense of mission creates urgency. It produces a desire to get things done quickly, rapidly. It incentivizes efficiency. You don't want to waste any time. You don't want to waste any resources that you have available. And it motivates you to step out and take risks and make sacrifices to fulfill that mission. Let's look at Matthew 6. Being mission-driven gives our lives purpose and direction and momentum. It gives us focus. And that is so important, students, because Satan is always trying to distract us. If you really believe in your mission, then you're not going to let anything get in your way. Matthew 6 and verse 31 says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek... For your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things, but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You've got to keep your mind and your focus on that overarching mission, or you're going to get pulled into materialism and all kinds of other distractions. You've got to keep that big picture in your mind. The kingdom of God is the family of God. Our big goal, our mission is family. Our mission is to do everything that we can to build God's family. We're trying to save humanity. We're trying to make humankind a multi-planetary species. And we need to be driven by that mission. That has to be vivid enough in our minds that it motivates us, that that actually drives us forward. It affects the decisions we make each day. It affects our little decisions and our time management. It affects our big life decisions. You can imagine creating a company that builds rockets. That involves a lot of details. When Musk launched SpaceX in 2002, he conceived it as an endeavor to get humanity to Mars. Every week, amid all the technical meetings on engine and rocket design, he held one very otherworldly meeting called Mars Colonizer. There, he imagined what a Mars colony would look like and how it should be governed. His former associate, Elisa Butterfield, said, we tried to avoid ever skipping Mars colonizer because that was the most fun meeting for him and it always put him in a good mood. 
So he kept his eye on the big goal. You know, you can imagine having that meeting each week. It was a way to put all those details into the context of the mission. Now, the one problem is, you know, a company that's building rockets to send people to Mars, how do you make that profitable? This says getting to Mars would cost serious money. So Musk combined, as he often did, an aspirational mission with a practical business plan. There were many revenue opportunities he could pursue, including space tourism, launching satellites for the U.S. and other countries and companies. And then in late 2014, he turned his attention to what would be a much bigger pot of gold, providing Internet service to paying customers. It would launch its own communication satellites, in effect, rebuilding the Internet in outer space. He said, Internet revenue is about a trillion dollars a year. If we can serve 3%, that's $30 billion, which is more than NASA's budget. That was the inspiration for Starlink to fund getting to Mars. But he says, the lens of getting to Mars has motivated every SpaceX decision. Everything he's doing is about, is it going to help us to accomplish that ultimate mission? So launching satellites, bringing astronauts to the International Space Station, all of these things are just to bring in the money that enables him to keep pursuing that big goal. The U.S. space program was done. When the, the last space shuttle mission finished in 2011, the United States was not sending anything up into space anymore. The Americans were relying on the Russians to put our people on the space station. And if it weren't for one man, then we'd have been done in space. And what is remarkable is this company that this man has built now launches more rockets, more missions into space than all other companies in the U.S., plus all other countries in the world combined. SpaceX. Now, how does that happen? You know, how does one man say, we're going to turn this whole thing around? We're going to actually prevent the United States from being defunct as a spacefaring power. One man. Well, I want to give you a sense of just how much that sense of mission motivated him. There's a, there's a chapter in this book, chapter 18, called Musk's Rules for Rocket Building. And it's a really cool chapter. And it shows you just how much he upended the entire industry of rocketry. This morning's trumpet brief had this quote at the bottom from Leonardo da Vinci. It has long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them they went out and happened to things. That's, that's exactly what, what, uh, what Elon Musk did. So uh, just a few of his rules. One was question every cost. Musk was laser focused on keeping down costs. It was not simply because his own money was on the line, though that was a factor. It was also because cost effectiveness was critical for his ultimate goal, which was to colonize Mars. He challenged the prices that aerospace suppliers charge for components, which were usually 10 times higher than similar parts in the auto industry. So to get around that idiot index, you know, the markup from the cost of materials to the, the retail price, they ended up just making a lot of the parts themselves. At one point, SpaceX needed a valve, and the supplier said it would cost $250,000. Musk declared that insane. 
and told this worker they should make it themselves. They were able to do so in months at a fraction of the cost. Another supplier quoted a price of $120,000 for an actuator that would swivel the nozzle of the upper stage engines. Musk declared it was not more complicated than a garage door opener, and he told one of his engineers to make it for $5,000. Jeremy Hallman, one of the young engineers, discovered the valve that was used to mix liquids in a car wash system could be modified to work with rocket fuel. He says, after a few years, SpaceX was making in-house 70% of the components of its rockets. Now, one reason why the costs on these parts were so high was because of regulations that were mandated by the military and by NASA. And this says, Musk made his engineers question all specifications. Whenever one of his engineers cited a requirement as a reason for doing something, Musk would grill them. Who made that requirement? And answering the military or the legal department was not good enough. Musk would insist that they know the name of the actual person who made the requirement. This refugee from Boeing who came to SpaceX, we would talk about how we were going to qualify an engine or certify a fuel tank. And he would ask, why do we have to do that? And we would say, there's a military specification that says it's a requirement. And he'd reply, who wrote that? Why does that make sense? All requirements should be treated as recommendations, he repeatedly instructed, The only immutable ones were those decreed by the laws of physics. Now, why is that important? I mean, we we live in Satan's world. We take a lot of things for granted. But just because everybody does things a certain way or just because everybody believes a certain thing doesn't mean that that's right, does it? I mean, I just think about Mr. Armstrong coming along and questioning foundational doctrines that formed the basis of all organized Christianity and just saying, well, is that, where did that come from? You know, he had to discern, he had to get back to first principles and well, which of these doctrines came from human beings and which came from God, (laughs) which are the immutable laws of God. And that's how God was able to work with him so that he could restore all things. Here's the next rule for uh, rocket building, Musk's rules for rocket building. Have a maniacal sense of urgency. Now, he is famous for setting ridiculously aggressive deadlines. This says, uh, a maniacal sense of urgency is our operating principle, he repeatedly declared. And this one guy admits, even though we failed to meet most schedules or or cost targets that Elon laid out, we still beat all of our peers. We developed the lowest cost, most awesome rockets in history, and we would end up feeling pretty good about it, even if dad wasn't always happy with us. You know, when they didn't meet the deadline that he would set, he would fly into a rage and that type of thing. And they learned to just, just, just weather the storm and keep on plugging away. Here's another lesson that he had. Because they moved so fast, they were able to create fast iterations of components and they could learn by failing. It says, learn by failing. Musk took an iterative approach to design. Rockets and engines would be quickly prototype tested, blown up, revised, and tried again until finally something worked. Move fast, blow things up, repeat. It's not how well you avoid problems, this guy says. It's how fast you figure out what the problem is and fix it. For example, there was a set of military specifications on how many hours each new version of an engine needed to be test-fired under a long list of different conditions. It was a tedious approach, very expensive. Elon told us to just build one engine, fire it up on the test stand. If it worked, put it on a rocket and fly it. 
because SpaceX was a private company and because Musk was willing to flout rules, he could take risks as they wanted to. These two guys pushed their engines until they broke, and then they said, okay, now we know what the limits are. When the engines would explode, they called those a rapid, unscheduled disassemblies. They had a, a very, very optimistic view of failure. And because they were willing to fail, they were willing to try new ideas. He felt like every failure held a lesson, every situation was salvageable, and he wasn't just cracking the whip on his team. He was always leading from the front. He was trying new things, experimenting, working through the night. It's, it's just phenomenal how driven he was because of his sense of mission. When they were working on projects, he would often have surges to meet a deadline, and he would have a countdown on every second that was required before that deadline came around. This is a quote about that, this this one project that they did. He was just insisted that this thing be done uh, within a couple of weeks. And it says, they put this video monitor up by the front door that had been reprogrammed, ship plus rocket stacked T, 196H44M23S. And it was counting down the seconds. And this guy explained, Musk does not let them round off into days or even hours. Every second counted. We need to get to Mars before I die, he said. There's no forcing function for getting us to Mars other than us, and sometimes that means me. I, when I think about this, it, makes, it reminds me of Isaiah 9 and verse 7. Think about that, that verse that says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. It says the zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. God is zealous about his plans. When he has something that he wants to do, he's driven by that mission. He is passionate about it and he will make it happen. That passion, that sense of mission produces action. It gets results. In 2003, Musk landed his first contract with NASA to launch satellites. It was a contract for $3.5 million. And that was a big victory. You know, this private private rocket building company suddenly is in partnership with, with NASA, and they're, they're building these rockets for the government, a private company. Now, it wasn't long after that that he was approached by the people at Tesla who said, would you invest in this company? And he quickly saw that, okay, this would enable him to pursue a second epic goal, building electric vehicles to move civilization off of fossil fuels. I, I was thinking about Hebrews 11, and you can write down Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. Those are the verses where it says that Abraham was wandering around as a stranger and a pilgrim. He was making tremendous sacrifices in his life because he had a vision of a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He saw something that didn't exist, and he saw it so vividly in his mind that it motivated him to, to go through any deprivation, any kind of sacrifices that he had to make in pursuit of that. His mind was on New Jerusalem when God the Father is going to come down and be with his family. Abraham was mission-driven. That's what motivated him to move his entire family. When God said, I want you to go up, get up and go to a city that I'll tell you about when you get there. That's what 
enabled him to sacrifice his own son. How vivid is your vision? You know, I'm asking myself this. How driven are you by your sense of mission? How real is it in your mind that it actually drives you forward? In 2008, Musk had these two companies going, SpaceX and Tesla, and both of them were on the verge of dying. SpaceX had launched three rockets that had all exploded. And, you know, it's one thing to lose a, a, an engine. It's another thing to lose a rocket that has several engines on it and all of the componentry within the rocket. Both of these companies were about to run out of money. Musk was scrounging money from anywhere that he could. You know, he's begging his friends. Do you have anything that you can give me to try to keep these companies alive? There was one decision that everyone around Musk thought he would have to make as 2008 careened toward a close. And you remember that was 2008 was when that massive economic downturn in the United States took place. So, you know, companies all over the country were hurting and nobody's wanting to invest in rockets or electric cars at that point. It seemed that he would have to choose between SpaceX and Tesla. If he focused his dwindling resources on one, he could be pretty sure it would survive. If he tried to split his resources, neither might. One day, his high-spirited soulmate, Mark Juncosa, walked into his cubicle at SpaceX. Dude, why don't you just give up on one of these two things? He said, if SpaceX speaks to your heart, throw Tesla away. No, Musk said. That would be another notch in the signpost of electric cars don't work and we'd never get to sustainable energy. Nor could he abandon SpaceX. We might then never be a multiplanetary species. The more people pressed him to choose, the more he resisted. He said this, for me, emotionally, this was like you've got two kids and you're running out of food. You can give half to each kid, in which case they might both die or give all the food to one kid and increase the chance that at least one kid survives. I couldn't bring myself to decide that one was going to die. So I decided I had to give my all to save both. That's how committed he was to these, these two epic goals. Space travel, electric vehicles. He really was mission-driven. He was mission passionate. And what sort of sacrifices are you willing to make for what you believe in? Seek first the kingdom of God and don't let anything in your life pull you off of that mission. That's why it's it's so important that, that we have vivid vision. Everything in, in Satan's world tries to dampen and destroy godly vision. All the entertainments, all the distractions, I think of it like the bright lights in a big city. When you look up at the sky at night, you can barely see the stars because of all the light pollution. You've got to get out of the city. You've got to get out into the country where away from all of that, uh, all of those lights where it's quiet and dark. And then you get this spectacular view of this canopy of jewels that God has created. There was a man at the feast. He he was deployed for military missions all over the world. He was on this tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific. And he showed me a picture that he took with his phone. And it was of the Milky Way. I mean, it looked like it was taken from the James Webb Space Telescope. It was just absolutely dominating the sky because there was 
no light pollution to get in the way of it. Just phenomenal, phenomenal picture. He sent it to me because I was like, I, that just is, is mind-blowing to me. But that's emblematic of the fact that we've got to come out of this world. We have to come out of this world and set our minds and our imaginations on God and on that spectacular vision. If it's really going to be vivid enough to motivate us, we've got to work to make it bright and full color and detailed in our minds. Musk had run out of money. Tesla was hemorrhaging cash. SpaceX had crashed three rockets in a row, but he was not ready to give up. Instead, he would go for broke, literally. He announced a few hours after the third failure, SpaceX will not skip a beat in execution going forward. There should be absolutely zero question that SpaceX will prevail in reaching orbit. I will never give up, and I mean never. Now, he said this was the worst period in his life. And the people at SpaceX thought that he was going to get angry. He was going to start blaming them for the failures that had taken place. But notice this. Instead, he told them that there were components for a fourth rocket in the Los Angeles factory. Build it, he said, transport it to the launch pad as soon as possible. He gave them a deadline that was barely realistic. Launch it in six weeks. He told us to go for it, said this one man, and it blew me away. A jolt of optimism spread through headquarters. This one guy says, I think most of us would have followed him into the gates of hell carrying suntan oil after that. Within moments, the energy in the building went from despair and defeat to a massive buzz of determination. A wired reporter who watched the failure of the second launch with Musk reached him to ask how he maintained his optimism. He said, optimism, pessimism, pessimism, forget that. We're going to make it happen. As God is my witness, I am hell-bent on making this work. Now, this one extraordinary quality in Musk is his willingness to, to take risks. Entrepreneurs are not generally risk-takers. This one guy says they're risk mitigators. They don't thrive on risk. They never seek to amplify it. Instead, they try to figure out the controllable variables and minimize their risk. But not Musk. He was into amplifying risk and burning the boats so we could never retreat from it. He wanted to see how fast a car could drive, what happened when you floored it, how close to the sun you could fly. That's the way that he thought. Musk relish risk. Think about how important this quality is in God. God was so driven to have a family that he was willing to risk losing his eternal loving companion. Christ was willing to give up his divinity, knowing that he could die forever. They could have lost everything. They put all of it on the line for the sake of having a family. And students, how much are you and I willing to risk for the sake of our mission? How much will you push yourself? How much will you sacrifice in pursuit of something worthwhile and noble? If you're going to be a success, You've got to take risks. You have to be bold. You have to take risks to have a profitable career. It takes boldness to date, to get married, to have children. It takes boldness to follow God. God says we have to be willing to give up everything, father, mother, sister, brother, even your own life to follow him. We can't be timid. We can't walk by sight. 
We have to walk by faith and we have to be all in. We have to go all in on something that we can't even see. But we've got to trust trust God that it's going to work. It's going to work in the end. And we've got to go all in. One of Elon's favorite words is hardcore. The story of how he turned Tesla around from bankruptcy is remarkable. It just took tremendous effort to work to meet monthly car output to make sure that they were profitable. At one point, they, they built a makeshift assembly line in the parking lot. Within three weeks, they were turning out Tesla S sedans. Three weeks to, uh, to, to make that in the parking lot to make sure that they were able to meet their quotas. One of Musk's favorite words and concepts was hardcore. He used it to describe the workplace culture he wanted. As the Model S production line ramped up, he spelled out his creed in a quintessential email to employees titled Ultra Hardcore. It read, please prepare yourself for a level of intensity that is greater than anything most of you have experienced before. Revolutionizing industries is not for the faint of heart. The, the fourth SpaceX rocket launch was a success. It, it saved the future of civilian space endeavors. And what's amazing is they, they had 500 employees. 500 employees made this happen. Boeing's comparable division had 50,000 employees. So he was doing this with 1% of the workforce. These people were working extremely, extremely hard. He says... I give people hardcore feedback, mostly accurate. I try to do it in a way that's not ad hominem. I try to criticize the action, not the person. We all make mistakes. What matters is whether a person has a good feedback loop, can seek criticism from others, and can improve. Physics does not care about hurt feelings. It cares about whether you get the rocket right. I believe in a strict meritocracy. Whoever is doing great work, they get more responsibility, and that's that. There was a point where SpaceX, they, they were actually competing contract with Boeing. They were able to get people into orbit on 40% less money than Boeing had. And with 60% more money, Boeing didn't even get a rocket up into the air. Like over and over again, they, they outperformed expectations. He says, I'm a big believer that a small number of exceptional people who are highly motivated can do better than a large number of people who are pretty good and moderately motivated. Now, this, this really came into play when Musk took over Twitter. Now, Walter Isaacson thinks that Twitter was a big distraction for Musk, that it took him off of his mission. And maybe it was, but I, I do think God probably had a hand behind that to expose some of the rot in the big tech companies and maybe to provide an avenue for free speech. But the culture clash, <laughs> the culture clash when Elon Musk went into Twitter headquarters is hilarious. And I'll just read a little bit of this to you. Musk seemed amazed as he wandered around Twitter's headquarters. A 10-story Art Deco, former merchandise mart. It had been renovated in a tech hip style with coffee bars, yoga studio, fitness room, game arcades, the cavernous ninth floor cafe, Serve free meals ranging from artisanal hamburgers to vegan salads. Sign on the restroom said gender diversity is welcome here. And as Musk poked through the cabinets filled with stashes of Twitter-branded merchandise, he found T-shirts that said, stay woke. He waved around as an example of the mindset that he believed had infected the company. The second-floor conference facilities 
There was a long wooden table filled with earthy snacks and five types of water, including bottles from Norway and cans of liquid death. He said, I drink tap water when he was offered one. It was an ominous opening scene. One could smell a culture clash brewing as if a hard scrabble cowboy had walked into a Starbucks. Between Twitterland and Muskverse was a radical divergence in outlook that reflected two different mindsets about the American workplace. Twitter prided itself on being a friendly place where coddling was considered a virtue. We were definitely very high empathy, very caring about inclusion, who was chief marketing and people officer until, oh, everyone needs to feel safe here. The company had instituted a permanent work-from-home option, allowed a mental day of rest each month. One of the common-used buzzwords at the company was psychological safety. Musk let loose a bitter laugh when he heard the phrase psychological safety. It made him recoil. He considered it to be the enemy of urgency, progress, orbital velocity. He preferred His preferred buzzword was hardcore. Discomfort, he believed, was a good thing. It was a weapon against the scourge of complacency. Vacations, flower-smelling, work-life balance, the days of mental rest were not his thing. Let that sink in. He he said this, we have 150 engineers doing autopilot, making self-driving cars. I want to get down to that number at Twitter. Now, they had... 10 times that number. So that meant firing 90% of their engineers. Within three weeks, he fired 75% of the staff there. People were telling him the whole thing was going to crash. Well, guess what? It didn't. It was just fine. Musk wanted deep cuts, not only for financial reasons, but also because he wanted a hardcore fanatic work culture. He was willing, indeed, eager to take risks and fly without a net. This, it just reminds me of Gideon's 300. You know, he started off with 32,000 soldiers. God said, well, get rid of the ones that don't really want to be here. 22,000 of them leave. Then he says, get rid of the ones that aren't really eager to battle. And it goes down to 300. And God can do more with a small group of dedicated, committed warriors than with a huge army of people who lack faith. Musk got rid of remote work. He said, everybody's got to be in the office. Engineers who stayed had to meet three criteria, excellent, trustworthy, driven. This was one of the greatest shifts in corporate culture ever. And I would say this, the Twitter culture, this is your generation that has become addicted to this kind of way of working. In fact, I would say even up to my generation, we've had it pretty easy Although when I was first hired by the work, I was easily working 60-hour work weeks. That was not uncommon at all. We have to fight the tendency to want to overemphasize our own comfort. And we definitely have to beware complacency. We have to build that willingness to push ourselves for the sake of the mission. Musk is usually not sentimental about people leaving. He likes fresh blood. He's more concerned with a phenomenon he calls phoning in rich, meaning people who have worked at the company for a long time and because they have enough money in vacation homes, no longer hunger to stay all night on the factory floor. This world that we are in is soft. God says women and children rule. Society has become feminized. Musk made a lot of enemies. 
I mean, he at one time he was the darling of the left because of electric cars, and now they hate him because he's anti-woke and all of those things. But I think a big reason they hate him is because he represents masculine energy. His ambition, his drive, his decision-making, his boldness, his emphasis on making stuff, on manufacturing. Our whole society has gotten rid of manufacturing, and we've gone to soft services, social services. He builds cars. He builds rockets. He builds huge factories. He's emphasizing moving the nation forward. And these things are gone in society. That kind of thinking built America, and now it's gone. I want to just read one more quote here. They're trying to build this this rocket, and they have all of these regulations that they have to get, get over. He said, this is how civilizations decline. They quit taking risks. And when they quit taking risks, their arteries harden. Every year, there are more referees and fewer doers. That's why America could no longer build things like high-speed rail or rockets that go to the moon. When you've had success for too long, you lose the desire to take risks. Students, we, we must be mission-driven. You, you only get so much time in this life, and you've got to make it count. You know, we all have to make it count. We're running out of time to get this work done. We're running out of time to make contributions to this work. We're running out of time to build the character of God. We have to be driven by the mission that God has given us and make sure that everything that we do, everything that we do is advancing the mission and leading us to finishing, finishing the mission that God has given us. That was Herbert W. Armstrong College instructor, Imperial Academy principal, minister, father, and trumpet hour originator, Joel Hilliker. If there was a joint special operations command for true education, he would be in it. That was a forum about educating yourself with the help of core lessons learned by one of the most remarkable men alive today, presented as a forum, as I say, to Herbert W. Armstrong College students. I thought I'd use the opportunity to point you to something that even Elon Musk has no idea about, but supercharges this whole subject. It shows you why there is such a thing as evil, why there is such a thing as good, and what the laws of human thinking are. It's a little 27-page booklet that has stood the test of time and I think is maybe one of the most underrated bits of understanding, but anyhow, it's What Science Can't Discover About the Human Mind by Herbert W. Armstrong. What Science Can't Discover About the Human Mind by Herbert W. Armstrong. Thanks to Mr. Hilliker for the use of his educational resources there and for everything it took to teach that core lesson. Thanks to Isaac Lorenz for sound editing and Miss Zoe Hilliker for making sure we've got show notes and so forth for you if you visit us at thetrumpet.com slash radio. Thank you for listening, and please rejoin us on Friday for another especially important Week in Review edition of Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.